0: Welcome to
1: International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.
0: Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Bierstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and US foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org.
1: In each episode of International History Declassified,
0: Peter and I will sit down with
1: historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today. Hello, and thank you for joining us on International History Declassified. Uh, Today, we have with us Deo Gore. Dr. Gore is an associate professor in the Department of African-American Studies at Georgetown University. Her research focuses on black women's intellectual history, U.S. political and cultural activism, African diasporic politics, and much more. Her 2011 book, Radicalism at the Crossroads, African-American Women Activists in the Cold War, recently came out on paperback. And she's currently working on a new book on African-American women's transnational travels and activism in the long 20th century. Uh, So I'd like to start with a question about your book, Radicalism at the Crossroads. Um, It centers on black women leftists, quote, at a time of heightened anti-communism, entrenched institutionalized racism and severely gendered social strata in American society. Uh, these have to be some truly impressive figures to, to take on essentially every major social and political issue in post-war U.S. history. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about who these women were and, and what made them take on such a daunting task?
2: It's interesting. I don't know that I would see them as extraordinary in some uh, individualized sense, but I think collectively they represent a pretty powerful group network of activists and some ways I think a generation of activists. And many of them came of age during the height of sort of the 1930s protests and social movements um, in a moment of real great optimism and possibility. Um, And I think in part, what, what I saw in their sort of activism was a ability to sustain, not necessarily to see this as a moment where We must mobilize and be extraordinary figures, but as a moment where they were politicized in the 30s and early 40s and became committed to a lifelong uh, struggle for black liberation for socialism for some of them for women's equality and took the steps that were necessary to sort of continue that work during some of the daunting times of the late 40s and 50s, as the left came under increasing attack post World War Two, as the Cold War really intensified. Um, and I always feel awkward calling it the Cold War, because many of the places I study in the global South, they were actually wars, hot wars. So uh, <laughs> sure. I often want to want to note that, but um, I think it speaks to their commitment, I think the communities and networks they were able to build and sustain, and I think being a part of this longer history of a Black radical tradition of political engagement and struggle. I mean, it's interesting, I started this project, I'll just, as an aside, I started as a scholar of sort of 19th century women's era activism, Ida B. Wells, suffrage, things like that. Um, but the Victorian era literature just became too much for me. <laughs> um, so I had to go find something a little more contemporary. Um, and I started this project, I think I mentioned in the book, um, looking through Paul Robeson's Freedom Newspaper and mm-hmm. just noting all the Black women who were writing, what they were writing about, writing about domestic struggles and also international struggles, uh, decolonial efforts happening um, in the continent in Africa. Um, and I think some of the figures that leaped out at I me mean, aren't well known. So one of the key figures I actually really gravitated to because I had read some of her work earlier in um, the 80s or something in, in sort of left journals was Vicki Garvin, who um, was writing in Freedom Newspaper, was a, a labor activist, an economist trained at Smith uh, College in Northampton um, and had become committed to left struggles to challenging sort of the economic exploitation faced by African-Americans and particularly African-American women and linking that to a broader, I think, global uh, idea of mm. supporting working class struggles. Um, and it just so happened she was, I was at the time was at NYU New York University. She had known one of my advisors mm. and he had interviewed her for the uh, an article he'd, he'd done. Um, and then I met her daughter, her stepdaughter actually, um, her daughter through marriage. And they had just submitted her archives at the Schomburg Library, uh, Schaumburg Center for uh, Research in Black Culture, mm-hmm. um, where I spent all of my time. <laughs> um, and she was just a fascinating figure, right? Had gotten mentioned along the way, um, was friendly with Malcolm X, had go- lived in China, lived in Ghana, was very active in New York. Um, But really had no one had done any real research on her and I found her to be a fascinating figure because she was still engaged in politics when I started this research in 97 or 98 I called her and we would talk on the phone occasionally and she would just send things in the mail to me. (laughs) um, Where she was. And did a talk in North Carolina for the black for a Black Workers Organization, or had written a piece in a left journal about her experiences. Um, and so I felt I was really drawn into sort of that life, and would talk to me a lot, but mostly about the great figures she had known. Because I think so much of the history that had been written, and the people who were writing, who would go to her and talk to her, wanted to know about who she knew, the great men she knew, Malcolm X, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Robeson. Mm-hmm. And I sort of was asking a different set of questions and I, I think at the beginning she was somewhat skeptical, rightly so, we should all be <laughs> a little hesitant when people come asking questions. Um, but after a while we sort of developed some conversations and that was very usable, but mostly she shared with me documents that I couldn't find other places. Um, or I didn't know what to look for at other places um, that really helped me to think about her so she's one of the key figures in my work. So I was interested in both the people who were less well-known, but how they connected to these bigger groups of people. And the group ends up circling around figures like Paul Robeson and Du Bois, who were in New York at the time. Um, Other folks like Harry Belafonte come in and out, um, uh, Julian Mayfield, um, things like that. So it's an interesting group of people, but I was more focused on The activists, I think some, they've been writing about the other figures, particularly the people who had produced art or literature, or actors, and I was interested in looking at um, people who were doing some of the on the ground organizing and had committed their life to that work.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. Pardon me. Uh sorry, little frog in my throat there. Um, this is no, this is really interesting, and and you, you've mentioned a couple of times having the opportunity to sit down with people such as as Vicky Garvin to have have conversations. Uh, can you just uh, asking stepping back and asking a bit of a process question here for a second? Can you explain what that what that preparation is like, and and um, perhaps what uh, what you've learned from sitting down face to face with some of these uh, figures and individuals? Uh, perhaps how that differs from say more a more traditional uh, archival experience. What 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 is uh, what is that experience like? been like for you
2: um it's been invaluable so at the end of the book i think my conclusion talks about just how much these women's voices have been important to my work but also when we think about much of the scholarship written about paul robeson if you go to those books these women are the people people go and talk to about them right martin uh, malcolm x that vicky garvin is in all these interviews about malcolm x so i would just say their experiences their perspective their voices are invaluable to my work um, obviously, um, I also did a really detailed archival work. And to be quite honest, I started doing archival work. Part of why I started as a 19th century scholar is that I didn't want to have to deal with people. Because <laughs> <I was laughs> like, I'm also an activist and I understand that when people get talking about, I want to write about politics and sort of the state and local organizing. Um, and I know when I've been in those rooms when people are talking about more contemporary politics and the actors that you're writing about are like, yelling back at you as you give a talk Mm -hmm. and I really sought to avoid that um so I was very hesitant to it but one of my advisors just had already had connections with people and really pushed me um, to talk to these folks and um partly I really tried to do a process of um, building multiple conversations with them um and some of it was very difficult because most of the women I talked to didn't talk about their own work. Then they would ask me, why do you want to talk about this? Why are you asking me about this? What what are you gonna do with this? And were sort of doubtful that this was a worthwhile conversation. I don't think they really felt that, but I think they were very like, this is not the usual conversation that I, I get. Once we got started talking, it became clear they had a, a very clear perspective and um ideas and analysis of what happened um, and their own lives and their politics. Um, And I took that as, I engaged it as just another, similar to I would any other source, right? They were preventing a perspective. I wanted their analysis. I didn't think their analysis was somehow more, uh, a more accurate portrayal. It was a different perspective. It was an important perspective, um, but they had their own, sort of political goals in talking to me and I respected that actually I I was happy to hear that Um, and they also had their own sort of memory so sometimes our conversations would really. not mesh with what I found in archive and I would ask them and sometimes they were like "Hmm, I have no idea why you're even what that is if that happened was I there, and I was like it suggests you were there. Um, And so there were some moments of discordance between those things um, and I tried to negotiate that in the book and be clear about that the archive says this. They don't have memories of of these certain things. And at times, some of them really resisted my effort to talk about it as a activism that was tied to the left and particularly the Communist Party in any way affiliated with the Communist Party. They were still very resistant to having their work discounted because of those relationships. And they really felt strongly that their work went beyond that. And I agree, that's sort of one of the arguments I make in my book that you can't know these women's work by just by thinking about them as affiliated with or members of the Communist Party. In part, their work speaks beyond that. And they saw the Communist Party as a, a, a useful space, as a network, and some really believe deeply in uh, a workers' revolution um, and in communism but they did not always follow the dictates of the party and many times pushed against it and saw their work as challenging the party. And I think their experiences provide a very different set of experiences for other folk than other folks who weren't black women in the party. So, um, but it was a really invaluable experience because it also showed me just how committed to a lifelong sort of uh, activism they were that, almost every one of the women i spoke to were still active in some way in their communities still mm-hmm. and also many of them were still connected to each other in some way um mm-hmm. uh even if uh they had political differences along the way um and still maybe had different analyses when you talk to them about what happened um they still kept in touch they sometimes traveled together um or made plans to um and so that was really I think important for me to understand that that I wouldn't have gotten from an archive, you know, that something sustained them throughout the 40s and 50s that continued to be a motivation for them through the 70s, 80s and 90s and even up to when I was talking about to them. That that was just a part of what they thought what they believed they had to do. I was very shocked to go to visit Thelma Dale and she was showing me all this organizing stuff, different stuff. Earlier, she was doing work around sort of civil rights organizing and the Progressive Party and uh, labor, but she was organizing like STEM access for students in the area trying to, was in one of the first integrated senior citizen homes in Hmm. North Carolina, you know, and sort of was telling me all this stuff that she was continuing to do. Um, So I just, I, I do feel, Um, that partly being able to talk to them allowed me to see some of that. Um, And it also allowed me to take seriously some of their, they pushed me, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Thelma Dell was like, I do not agree with this project. Hmm. I don't know that this is the political, this is politically useful to sort of label it as the left and sort of, she felt some of it was to diminish what they were doing by giving in to those sort of who might, just label it as as communist and discard it. Hmm. I mean, she was really hesitant about that. Obviously, not so hesitant that she she still talked to me. But she just said to me, and she signed a release and all those things that you do to make sure people um, have a voice in in oral history. And I shared the the transcripts with them when I could. Um, but she was just like, you know, I I'll respect it enough that it's your project, but it's not what I would do.
1: Wow, it really adds some some strength behind their words. Then to to still believe this stuff now and and to still be active. I mean, uh, it kind of shows they're really the real deal. It, it wasn't sort of a, a way of uh, lashing out, but I mean, really um, something that they believed in. That's, that's very cool.
2: Yeah, and I think they really. I do think part. I I debate this often in my own with myself about what marked this group of people as different, because I, I guess I'll just say, I entered this project as a child of the eighties, really thinking about how people sustain when there aren't political movements, right? I think mm-hmm. uh, as a historian of social movements, I started reading about the sixties and there's, it just seemed so exciting and everything was happening. And then, you know, you read this and then you're like, but now nothing's happening. I don't, How? <laughs> what do you do in this moment? And so I started, looking about these people in the 40s and 50s, because it was seen in US history as such a period of a lull and activism until 55 and the civil rights movement. But I was interested in those folks who had been politicized in the 30s, what happens to them when they're sort of in their 30s and 40s at the height of sort of their organizing abilities and their professional lives, what are they doing? Um, and I think I have not come to a resolution, whether it's generational that that made them such committed activists, but I think some of it is about. um, Also, just the powerful networks, they were able to build that I think was fueled in part by the limited terrain that if you were active in the 40s and 50s, you had to really develop a tough skin and a real commitment. Because it could be not only threatening to your livelihood or your jobs because of the anti-communist assaults they had to face, but it could be threatening to your life as a black activist trying to organize around civil rights or against police violence or against sexual assault against black women. All of those things that they were doing could cost people their lives. And so I just think um, some of that real commitment, uh, sort of, you, you built a really strong bond and you saw I think, secondly, they saw what came afterwards. They were in such a lull period. And then in in the book, particularly around the Vicki Garvin chapter, I write about 55 as one of their major organizations, the National Negro Labor Council is dying. They look up and they see um, Rosa Parks uh, who had been uh, tied to them in in some ways uh, uh, and the uh, Montgomery bus boycott and think and see Martin Luther King and think we are on the turn, right? That, and then get to live through this major political upheaval. So I do think part of their ability to sustain is that they emerged during a period when there was such activism in the thirties, and then they were able to sustain through the forties and fifties to another major upheaval and social movements on the ground. Um, and, And, I think they found, even if it wasn't their political strategies and political organizations didn't survive to see that, they did as activists. And they, many of them were able to be useful, mentor younger activists, but also be involved in that organizing that happened in the 60s and 70s. That's
0: Fascinating. It's a, a, a very interesting tale, an interesting story. Um, just shifting gears for a second here, could you tell us a little bit about your, your new project on African-American women's travel and activism?
2: Sure, so that it's funny because um, when I was the radicalism of the crossroads always started as my um, dissertation and I I imagine most uh, grad students experience this when you go into the archive you just collect everything. And then, (laughs) which is what I did and tried to go to every archive and. and find everything I could. Um, and then when you sat down to to edit the dissertation to a book and bring in new chapters, you realize, you know, no publisher is going to publish your 14 sources that tell one point. They're like, mm-hmm. thanks. <laughs> but we don't need they all should, that.
1: They should. <laughs> yeah. They, they <laughs> should. But they
2: won't. they won't at all. <laughs> and I was like, we were like, yeah, you. this is the same point you've said three different lines with four different sources. And I was like, but I have them all. <laughs> Um, And so partly the new project uh, takes off a little bit where the radicalism crossroads ends, it tries to expand on chapter five and then look backwards and forwards a little bit um, around that. Um, But really it was trying to create a, think about the ways in which even in radicalism, the crossroads, these women were doing local work, um, national work in the US, but also always thinking transnationally, internationally, right? That's part of their um, political vision, right? Was thinking about um, black liberation internationally, thinking about workers liberation internationally. Um, And so I was interested in trying to track that along the long 20th century. How does that operate or give them room to move, obviously, people write about the Cold War and particularly African-Americans in the Cold War as a moment where they use the real limits on um, the US sort of racial justice politics and the desegregation that's happening to challenge the US as a ideal vision of democracy and also to broadcast that internationally. And people talk about that as like the US's Achilles heel, right, that during the Cold War, one of the faults the US gets challenged on is the ways in which its white supremacy shapes its treatment of African-Americans and other racialized groups in the, in the nation. I um, African-Americans really use that to push and demand the government meet their needs. And you can think about Paul Robeson in that um, the uh, first March on Washington movement was all about challenging the US to sort of uh, be, treat African-Americans more fairly as it fought a war for freedom. Um, And I was interested in that beyond the Cold War, has that been a lever longer than simply the 40s and 50s? How did African-Americans use the international arena to make demands for racial justice at home, racial equality at home, an end to white supremacy in the United States? Um, And particularly how did black women use those tools? Because I'd seen it in in this period I was writing about, um, and obviously, if we think about um, the the decolonization in the 60s and 70s, it becomes a part of that conversation. Um, so I was interested in that in the long 20th century and sort of following some of the women I had studied in different places. And so, um, and then I also got to go back to my early work on Ida B. Wales, who had always been a fascinating figure mm-hmm. with me to me, but to really begin to think about this as, you know, I think, um, The scholar Robin Kelly has this great, you know, uh, saying that African-American history has always been transnational or international history um, and really sort of trying to chart the ways in which that shaped Black women's history and Black women's activism. So the book starts with Ida B. Wells and her travels to uh, England in the 1890s, right as she's taking up an anti-lynching crusade and gets sort of run out of the South. She ends up going to to England to um, champion her cause and gets a, a, a very powerful audience there. Other black women during this period also end up traveling abroad, um, Mary Church Terrell. So I try, talk about Mary Church Terrell's travels to Berlin to try to talk about the struggles of black women in the US and gain an international audience to put pressure on the US. Um, and then it follows, um uh, activists who are involved in uh, traveling to the Soviet Union to Russia during the post the revolution uh, in the 30s, um, particularly Maud White, Louise Thompson Patterson, it travels, it, there's another chapter that looks at uh, the community of women that end up going to Europe right after World War II. Mm-hmm. And so there are these major delegations, mostly women delegations, to go see what war Produces the results of war, I guess. Um, and um, there's an AFL-CIO or AFL uh, contingent that goes um, with uh, Maida Springer Kemp to Oxford, and then travels around to 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 uh, uh, factories um, in Europe to to see the results of of the war. There's another contingent. Um, and that contingent tends to be more labor, more, uh, less, more democratic socialist. I, I don't mm-hmm. want to get into all the details, but <laughs> not a communist party, sure. but more of a sort of uh, labor, mainstream labor party. And then, but there are also contingents that go through the communist party. Um, and Esther Cooper, uh, Jackson goes with one of those contingents to see that. Um, and then in 48, the Women's International Democratic Federation is formed in Paris and has a major conference that Thelma Dale goes to and a number of women from the US goes to from the left. Um, And it's interesting because out of that activism and travel that happens in Europe, you see a real uh, explosion or powerful networking that produces a whole host of women's organizing and transnational activism that will fuel the United Nations um the women's international democratic federation the widf becomes one of the most powerful if rarely talked about because of its uh, affiliations with the left but powerful women's organizations internationally it has membership from throughout the global south from eastern europe from western europe from the us um and it becomes a real force in the united nations for women's voices in that and so i try to use that period of uh the post-war, immediate post-war, to think about then what happens? How does the Cold War then Mm -hmm. shift the international Mm -hmm. terrain? Um, And from there, our chart. um, So women's involvement, particularly in U.S., and petitions to the United Nations on behalf of African Americans. So the Civil Rights Congress does one. We charge genocide. The National Negro Congress does one before that. And the NAACP also is involved in a petition to the United Nations on behalf of African Americans. Um, So I try to think about how they see that as a strategy and how the UN for multiple activists, not just the left becomes a initially a, a site of hope for having some international interventions around uh, the struggles African-Americans are facing in the US and black folks are facing in the US. Um, and then I look at uh, some of the figures that came up in radicalism as a crossword. So I follow Vicki Garvin to China and talk about her time there. I think in my book, I just mentioned it briefly, in the first book I mentioned it briefly, but I wanted to think about that more uh, long-term and what that meant for her as an organizer, um, and also what that meant for her politics and connections to the US, what were the influences and power she was able to mobilize being an activist in China, still connected to the US and talking about that relationship. Um, And I look at other campaigns like the Campaign of Free Angela Davis and it's really international transnational reach where it brings in many of the the left organizations in Eastern Europe and Europe, uh, many decolonization movements in the global South and Africa, the ANC, um, things like that, uh, activists in Mozambique, um, and really thinking about how that becomes an international campaign that connects African American and Black, Black Folks' struggles in the U.S. to this broader uh, framework for thinking about decolonization, anti-imperialism, and a global blackness.
1: No, I I I think that that's a fascinating point and something I'm I'm really uh, personally interested in. Uh, How how did how does this relationship show itself in the sources while you're doing this research? Um, I mean, talk about representation in the state. I I think obviously um, that's mirrored in representation in national archives, right? Mm -hmm. So you know if if uh, as somebody who loves to go into archives and is interested in it um you know how how do you uh track these movements and these individuals and and represent their significance if it's if they're not represented within national archives and kind of the more standard um kind of measure of of uh developing a history and, and and an understanding of of um particularly the cold war at least uh in in our neck of the woods
2: yeah. No, that's a very good question, and it actually translates, I even think, to, um, you know, now that archives are being opened up in Eastern Europe and other places, even in those archives, because unless you're a renowned figure traveling there, a Paul Robeson or Robert Williams, the state doesn't track you as closely, right, you don't get as much um, information. And for me, it really just has been sort of to look very specifically certain places, and then also to look everywhere. And what do I mean by that? So um, I am a big fan of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. That's where I started, it's in uh, Harlem, New York, and it has an amazing collection of papers, Paul Robeson's, um, Julian Mayfield, um, organizational papers. Um, and I spent a lot of time there, but I spend my time there It has some papers on like Vicki Garvin now, Claudia Jones, some of the women I was interested in. But when I started, those papers weren't even processed. So when I spent time on Vicki Garvin, her papers had not even been processed. I was just going through boxes the family had dropped Mm -hmm. off. And, Mm -hmm. um, but I realized that I had to look in all these places that didn't necessarily name that these women would be there. So I looked in Paul Robeson's papers and found his connections to these, some of these women. Hmm. Um, but they weren't listed because they weren't seeing sig- the significant or singular figures to say Paul Robeson knew Vicki Garvin.
1: <laughs> right. It goes the other way around.
2: <laughs> exactly. And, you know, no one knows who Vicky Garvin is, so you would never find that in the finding aid. Maybe you would now. I hope that maybe you would now. Um, or I would look at like the Civil Rights Congress papers, um, because a lot of these women were doing on the ground organizing. And in that, I found all of these. Um, uh writings poetry performance pieces done in support of the civil rights congress we charged genocide petition by uh richards and you would it never listed her in the the finding aid as i figured but in looking through those papers um closely i found all this information about her and her letters back and forth to william patterson so it really meant looking in unexpected places so mm-hmm. i also did go to for this new project i spent time at the united nations uh, archive in, in uh, new york um which is just huge so it was mm-hmm. a little bit of time wasted <laughs> but i did find some mention because i was interested in one of the women um who had worked um in ethiopia through the united nations and seeing if i could find anything and i found a couple mentions her but not a lot and so it meant uh Going to certain archives and looking um, either organizations or people that I know they had relationships with and hoping to find those those connections there. Um, It also meant uh, tracing organizational papers. um, Hmm. Mm -hmm. That. Are a little more complicated to figure out where to find them, because if their names aren't known, they aren't in the finding aids, And so it, it meant taking some of the information I'd already collected, they were in part of this organization during this period, they worked on this campaign, and then just looking in that campaign very closely and and, and seeing what I could find. Nowadays, I think there are some figures that are more well known, Shirley Graham, Dubois, uh, hopefully, Vicki Garvin, um, Louise Thompson Patterson, where you can also look at their papers, and I did to find sort of more detailed work, information about their work, and that was also useful. So, um, I started where I knew I would find something, and then, whenever I could, whenever I can, I actually go end up at an archive just looking to see mm-hmm. if um, something pops up around them, um, you know. And sometimes it's helpful, and sometimes it's really right. hard to to you leave with very little.
1: Dale, thank you so much for coming on uh, th- this. Uh conversation has just been really fascinating and and i think the work that you're doing is 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 really cool and interesting and and uh important as well so um i really appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us
2: uh, no thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk on about (laughs) my work
0: as always you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org we'd like to thank graham norwood for this podcast's music
1: You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.